Welcome back to the Automotive EE Systems Revolution podcast series from Siemens Digital Industry Software. This is your host and moderator, Connor Pike. Over the last three episodes, we have been busy examining all the major trends affecting automotive EE systems development with our two experts, Doug Brissicki and Dan Scott. Today, we pivot that discussion to begin talking about what the future is going to look like. How are EE architectures and vehicles, for that matter, going to evolve? What new challenges will the vehicles of tomorrow introduce? And how will companies transform to meet new challenges? All this and more coming right up in Episode 4 of Automotive EE Systems Revolution. Please enjoy. To start off today, we wanted to focus a little more on what the future is going to hold for automotive and, and vehicle development. So the first question, I mean, very broad question is, what do companies need to develop vehicles of the future? Obviously, there's there's a lot there that they need, right? There's first and foremost, you need a, a skilled workforce. You need people, subject matter experts in certain areas, people that understand the full context of, of the design and you know what you're trying to achieve. It starts with the high-level vehicle requirements, obviously, but those have to be pulled together by people at the end of the day. Those people have to use tools. They have to follow process. And in my opinion, you hear about it as a buzzword these days, digital twin, digital thread, digital product, digital representation. The fact is, is that you need people, if you're going to be a successful organization going forward, you need to leverage a common data set. And that that's the backbone of a digital twin, if that's what you want to refer to it as. But a common data set from the beginning of your process through the end of your process, uh, a common data set that's used by all the individuals that touch that information throughout the development life cycle. I think that's probably the biggest challenge for the companies these days, because as we've talked about, we have partition silos and uh, each of those silos within an organization have their own process and tools that they use. And those may not necessarily be compatible with each other. And that results in loss of data or data validity. And, you know, it adds time and error because people have to re-enter, recreate data. So I, I think that's one area that all companies have to focus on moving forward if they're going to be successful based on the complexity and the size of the data sets that they have to manage. Yeah, one thing you just said by saying at the start then, Doug, I think is interesting is about that, you know, the thing where obviously we need a skilled workforce, you need engineers who kind of, yeah, have, have the relevant skills at the relevant time. And I think one of the things that's interesting about that is just the pace of change of things, which, you know, we've everyone can see it has been accelerating as well as just this shift that we we've talked about in previous episodes about you know shift from more traditional sort of mechanical skills to maybe some more software and electronics and those sorts of things but i guess one of the things that sort of goes in parallel with that is just the pace of change and so i guess one of the things i was just thinking about was is we do need skilled engineers one of the things they're going to need in in tools for example is kind of easy to use tools. So if engineers are going to be potentially shifting disciplines a bit more or, or even just sort of moving into sort of slightly adjacent things from where they were originally trained, I think something around that kind of usability of the tools, the easiness to sort of pick up, being able to embed some of that process knowledge or some of that company IP or what have you in the tools, I guess going back to, you know, some of the things you were beginning to touch on at the end there around the kind of data, all of that feels quite important to me in terms of, you know, tools are just something which which augment and which help the engineers be creative and be innovative and do those and play a supporting role in that. But I think they can really have like a leveraging effect, I think, in terms of the innovation and the stuff that engineers can create. So, yeah, that was just one thought that sparked when you were talking about the sort of skilled engineers bit as well. 
I think you're right. I mean, that's, uh, you know, we see it today. We, we talked again in a prior podcast. We talked about many of the OEMs are going through organizational changes because they're putting a greater emphasis on software. So that's resultant of this shift where more and more of the content and vehicle differentiation is being driven by software. So that's not a skill set they traditionally retained in high numbers. We know that they've been historically mechanical or electromechanical based organizations or engineering skills that were delivering the majority of the vehicle content. And that's changing. And we also know that the workforce is aging, right? And you're seeing a, a shift, a transition in people with 20, 30 years or more experience are retiring. And there's not necessarily a structured way of retaining that knowledge base. And these companies don't want to go out and hire someone who's just as skilled in an area that they need less expertise in. They want to focus on the areas that they're weakest on. So they want to retain that knowledge. They want to retain the ability to design these mechanical or electromechanical parts or implement these systems without having to hire experts. And the way to do that is retaining the knowledge that you have in tools, if you can, so that you can then automate that process. And in some cases, not even have to backfill that spot necessarily. You can use tools to process data instead of people to re-enter data for no value add activities, right? And like you said, let them focus on innovation and how to optimize and improve whatever facet of the design that they're working on. I think that's going to become even more critical given where we are post-COVID because we know the financial impact and repercussions are far from over. And we've already seen OEMs and suppliers, tier one and tier two, in some cases go bankrupt already. And in other cases, you know, lay off significant parts of their workforce. And what they've done in many cases is they've laid off, you know, their more expensive aspects of their workforce or areas that they feel are going to be more obsolete in the future. And they're going to rehire with younger, less experienced engineers in areas where they're not as strong right now, like software, for example, or validation and simulation areas where they're focused on trying to reduce their development life cycles as well as reduce their expenditure and reliance on the number of resources that they need to realize these designs. Yeah, and I wonder as, as you kind of sort of see engineers shifting then in that kind of way and needing to have this kind of continual learning sort of mentality, I guess. I guess for companies like ours that provide those tools, one of the key things I suppose will be kind of learning support whether that's like online courses or whether it's on-demand training or face-to-face training those sorts of things a way for companies like ours to support engineers in companies to get up to pace quickly or to quickly learn new aspects of tools or processes those sorts of things i guess i'm just thinking it's it's kind of like a more holistic offering you kind of need to have then isn't it it's not just here's here's some software go enjoy but there's, there's kind of a, a bigger sort of picture to really help them to equip engineers to do what they need to do. To that point, you know, no implementation is the same, right? Every We have the same software that we provide to hundreds of customers around the world, and they all use it differently. And some of them need guidance or help in figuring out the best way to use it based on what their process is or is not constrained by. So, yeah, you're right. That's a very real aspect to the environment or the market today. And it's probably even more evident as a result of us all working remotely from home for the most part uh, over the last six months and for the foreseeable future as well. So having people be able to 
quickly learn and adapt to new tools and process from the comfort of their home would have been a nice to have just a year ago, but now is becoming uh, essential for effective implementation of these tools and processes. Kind of leading on from this discussion, I wanted to ask you guys the role that you think company culture or corporate culture can play in the adoption of tools and learning, essentially. <laughs> I think it's uh, probably one of the single largest factors in whether or not you're successful or how long it takes you to achieve success as you go through any process transformation. Certain companies are very adept at changing and pivoting and refining their approach based on what's going on around them, what's working and what's not. And others have, you know, a longer history. They don't see a need to change. If it's not broke, don't fix it. You know, they're less incentivized because things have worked for years, but they're not maybe as reactive to what's going on around them right now. So I think that that, in short, is one of the single biggest challenges to overcome. But again, it goes hand in hand with the scope of your project, right? I mean, it's easy to implement projects and process improvement in a particular engineering team or a portion of an engineering team. It's when you go across the full enterprise, right? It's when you start talking about affecting a process that impacts a guy who's responsible for the architecture definition, as well as the guy who's responsible for the networking requirements that come as an output of that definition, and then the resultant software structure that's resulting from the ECU partitioning and feature allocation. So they're all intertwined, but we're not necessarily making decisions with all of those groups involved at the same time based on what's best for the enterprise. Hmm. The culture one's an interesting one as well for sort of linking back to that, what we were just talking about with regards to the engineers. I mean, I guess particularly for things like recruitment and, and retention of employees as well, and keeping those skills in the business, getting the right skills into the business. Culture has such a massive impact on that in terms of, I guess, generations, you know, stereotypically younger sort of people, younger generations kind of coming through have different expectations of what work should look like. And, and I guess the environment of work as well. And, you know, it's a lot less about presenteeism sort of being physically in the office and, you know, showing you sort of showing your face, clocking in, clocking out and, and doing your hours and a lot more about, yeah, just a lot more about flexibility, a lot more about being able to sort of express themselves and be creative. And I'm thinking particularly around sort of engineering and those sorts of skill sets. But I think, you know, the broader sort of company vision and company focus, I think has a big impact on people's decisions. I think increasingly will as well. Whereas I think maybe historically people were much, not much, were maybe less, less worried about that. It was less of a consideration. I think that's changing quite a bit. And I think with companies nowadays, I think that's culture has a, a big part in that. But just in terms of their adaptability, you know, can they adapt to change? I think that's such a massive thing. It's like that innovators dilemma that Clayton Christensen talked about, where the incumbents get so fixed on keeping their cash cow going that they're unable to break out of that and try something new and take risks and, and sort of dare to fail, those sorts of things. So I think it's a continual challenge for companies. I think, you know, because culture is all about the people, isn't it? And the, the priorities that, that companies set. So, yeah, I think it's, it's a massive, a massive deal. It's like we talked about last time with the example of Tesla coming along and 
kind of eating the lunch of the big traditional OEMs in regards to electric vehicles, where they maybe hadn't recognized the appetite for such a product. And this smaller company that didn't have such a long tradition was able to come along and demonstrate quite a large appetite for it. And of course, they they needed a compelling product to make that work. But I certainly think there's an aspect of the larger companies being a little stuck in their ways, perhaps. Yeah, or well, certainly being perceived that way, I guess. You know, I've worked for a variety of different companies from sort of startups to tier ones to big OEMs to, to what have you and consultancy firms. And what I found interesting moving from company to company or working within those different things is looking at them from the outside. I think it's easy to think that, you know, yeah, it's a stereotype big OEM, traditional OEMs are quite sort of stuck in their ways. There's aspects of, of some companies that are absolutely like that. But balanced in amongst that, you have pockets of, you know, creative and, and sort of forward-looking people and, you know, trying to sort of make change happen. So I think it's quite an interesting time because big OEMs know they have to change. They know that the traditional business models, traditional products, they're not going to be the future. And so it's like, well, what now? When do we change? We've got these sort of products that are making us money. At what point do we make that shift? And there's, you know, for them, unlike startups or differently to startups, there's a big risk factor for them in terms of when they press go on that. So I think that's a big challenge and a yeah, a hard one for them to manage. Yeah, that's a really great perspective, actually. And, and thank you for bringing that up. I hadn't considered the difference between perception and reality, of course, which can frequently be quite large. But maybe next we can move along to sort of the future of EE systems and where we see those progressing based on what's going on today. I wanted to to back up and say that back to the cultural aspect and some of the legacy companies, you know, maybe struggling with, with this a bit more. At the end of the day, those companies, in my opinion, it's going to come from the top down, right? You have structures and organizations that have existed for decades in in many cases. And like I said, things have been done a certain way. There's specifications and process documentation that has been followed for years. And people are very averse to changing those things because they've proven reliable and repeatable, but they're not sufficient to keep up with the pace of the modern technologies and the development cycles, uh, the cycle of consumer electronics that are driving content in the vehicles. And we talk a lot about automotive and transportation, but the same discussion can be had in other industries like heavy equipment and agricultural equipment as well. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of autonomous technologies being applied to those fields as well. And, you know, they're going through the same struggles that the traditional automotive companies are, but they're handling things in a little different fashion. But at the end of the day, it's being driven from the top down where it's happening because, the people who are doing the day-to-day jobs don't want to change. They don't want to do things differently in most cases. I'm not going to say across the board, as as Dan just said. There's always pockets of people pushing for improvement, process enhancement, and just bettering what it is that they do and how they deliver it, and that'll never stop. But for an organization to change across the board or to pursue things from a different perspective, it has to come from the top down. You know, that's why you see there's there's leaders out there that are – trying to transform their organizations and being successful to different or various levels of degrees. But then you can clearly see other organizations that are not, you know, maybe that's their strategy. Maybe their strategy is to 
not be a tech or an innovation leader, but to be more of a, to eventually turn into a contract manufacturer, if you would, or maybe focus on system integration. I mean, there's different business models out there that can be successful. That's, you know, part of my observation is it's not just a lack of willingness. You know, some of these companies are reinventing themselves in ways that may not be aligned with being tech powerhouses or staying at the forefront of technology. And that's just part of the evolution. Yeah, that's interesting, Doug. And and it reminds me of something I was thinking about recently. And I'd really be interested in your thoughts on this actually as well, which is, you know how we're kind of going through this, this kind of re-verticalization almost of the sort of supply chain where take, for example, somebody like Tesla, you know, an automotive company historically would not have been designing its own ICs or getting down into the real depths of the electronics. They'd be managing suppliers who did that for them. And one thing I was wondering about is, you know, that's obviously is a trend generally that's kind of happening and bringing a lot more of the sort of embedded software in-house where traditionally that would have been specced out to suppliers to provide. So one thing I was wondering was, you know, do you think that's kind of like a long-term trend that that verticalization will continue? Or one thing I was wondering was, is this actually just like a natural sort of cycle of sort of manufacturers as they're kind of developing new technology, whether it was, you know, automated transmissions or engine controls or whatever it was in the day? They do a lot of that work in-house, so they then understand in detail what's required and what that means before they're then comfortable to pass that out to a supplier to then be able to manage them and kind of understand what they're delivering and kind of drive them to do quality, cost down, all of those sorts of things. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are, I guess, on that. Do you think we're just at the start of a cycle of that and in five years' time or seven or how many years' time it is, it'll be back to tier ones doing a lot of the core autonomous electrification technology or do you think it's a sort of a wider trend of actually having more sort of verticalized sort of organizations or OEMs and well first it's a good question I think it's you're going to see combination of of everything really there are OEMs historically that you know as you say for content that has a significant impact on their cost structure or vehicle performance you know, if they didn't do that in-house, they initially did it in-house, so they understood it inside and out and could maximize the purchase if they outsourced it. This, I think, is a little different in the sense that, first off, the embedded software piece or the application software piece, as you said, is becoming a much greater aspect of the cost structure of the vehicle. Some estimates have it as high as 30 to 40% currently, with projections of it being half of the development cost of an automobile by 2030. So, that reason alone is a motivator for an OEM to bring it in-house, right? There's no OEM in the world wants to outsource half of their product development. But the other aspect is more about IP and differentiation. Everyone can have a, an autopilot type of function, but they're all doing it differently. There's different technologies. There's different strategies in regards to your sensor arrays. There's different approaches through the distribution of your ECUs and how you perform your sensor fusion. Every OEM, like it or not, has a different approach unless they're buying a pre-validated subsystem from a system integrator, someone like a, a Waymo or an Uber. That's what they're aspiring to be as a subsystem provider of autonomous functionality. So you could do it either way. You could procure it externally if you don't have the capability and don't want to invest in it internally, but you're, you're buying something that someone else has, so there's no differentiation, but it's cheaper cost potentially. So some OEMs may look at that as their business model. 
Others, obviously at Tesla, took a much different approach, and they went so far as to say that the silicon is part of the foundation of their IP and their vehicle performance, and it's the basis of their vehicle architecture and how they approach their entire autonomous architecture. So they took a different approach, didn't want to spec it and outsource it. And I think that that's the first step in what's been referred to as the decoupling of software and hardware. So we've talked about development cycles and the challenges of the OEMs. Well, part of that is developing the hardware and the software in parallel because hardware clearly takes much longer than the software cycle that it's support the software that it's running on it. And that software is what's in large part providing the feature. So that's a challenge for the OEM. But now you take that to the next step where they have to source that business to a supplier. And what they're trying to do is get to the point to where they can develop a hardware platform and commoditize it, have it supplied by two, three, or four suppliers who they leverage against each other. And they own all the software and the IP that differentiates the feature, the vehicle itself, the brand. And, you know, that way no one cares about the hardware, much like phones have become to a lesser extent, right? Because there's still design and the aspect that you hold that in your hand. But from a consumer perspective, when you're driving a car, you don't care what tier one supplier provided any module in that vehicle. All you care about is the functionality and the feature that's running on it. So I, I see that as uh, two different strategies that are both currently being engaged right now or deployed. Yeah, that makes sense. And and it reminded me when you were saying that about like phone providers, you know, that's an interesting analogy in terms of like the Apple approach to things where they own the whole ecosystem, the software, the hardware, the distribution channel, you know, everything are kind of about it versus say an Android or sort of system or even in, you know, laptops like PC kind of Windows world where it's like we'll focus on the software and then traditionally, you know, the hardware, it will work on a number of different types of hardware, but that's not our speciality. Yeah, I think that's interesting to think about it in, in that kind of way. And you're right, I guess each organization is going to have to take a good, long, hard look at itself and work out where can it add the most value? What's its kind of key sort of areas that they can differentiate, where they can yeah, carve a niche out and, and make some profit? Again, we mentioned it in the last podcast, but I think I referred to it as a specialization But I think you're going to see, so you have a lot of tier one companies out there right now that focus on hardware and software, and they provide fully validated modules based on a set of requirements from an OEM. And it's essentially a black box. The OEM doesn't necessarily care about the hardware and the software stacks in the box. They just want to make sure it meets their requirements. And now you're getting to the point to where the OEMs are specking more of that software and in some cases writing it on their own and they're only specking the hardware. And that's not a good value proposition for a tier one supplier to be in is just providing hardware because then you're just a commodity supplier. So they're trying to figure out how to provide more value to the OEMs based on their various business model. Maybe they want to move upstream and do more system architecture definition for the OEM or with the OEM. You know, or maybe they focus on certain features or functionality, like they focus on being the best software provider for algorithms associated with charge coupling systems or battery management systems. You know, whatever the case is, you focus on a certain area that's in demand or there's a need for and try to be the best in it. So again, there's multiple strategies in play and I've seen evidence of of all of them really. It's just a matter of time to see which ones pan out the best. How do these trends that we've been discussing, how do they affect 
the EE architecture and the development of EE systems? There's a lot of things we talked about, right? As far as EE architecture, it's evident that if you're not already actively developing a new architecture for your vehicles, you will be very shortly, and you're probably behind the curve if, if you haven't started yet. Essentially, there's a race, and whether you're focused on EVs, AVs, both, or just being competitive in the marketplace at scale, you're going through an architecture transformation. And you're probably going to be going through another one in another five years or so as we migrate from these distributed architectures of today to a more zonal architecture and then, you know, potentially even centralized architectures. But if you think about it, an EV, for example, lends itself to a zonal architecture because each wheel is its own motor, right? And you can easily replicate and provide redundancy for certain features and functionality. It's a natural evolution based on opportunities that are presented through the technologies such as EV powertrains that allow for this type of innovation essentially to occur that you couldn't do with a internal combustion engine architected vehicle just because of the performance design and packaging parameters. So the whole way the vehicles are being approached is changing. Essentially, there's not a standard template for developing a vehicle anymore. If you look at some of the concepts that have come out in the last couple of years, I mean, you see everything from a box on wheels to some of the sexiest performance cars I've seen designed in decades. So I talked about it the other day. There's people that buy cars for features and content, and there's you know people that buy cars for design and styling and performance. And what I really like about the EVs is uh, it's, a, it's a blend of both. I mean, you really can have the state-of-the-art feature and functionality, and those cars are just fun to drive, and, and the packaging freedom that the designers have is second to none. So there's clearly a huge emphasis on EE architecture redevelopment, and if you get it wrong, it can be detrimental to your business. If you get it right, you can be highly profitable because of it. So everyone is aware of it. All the OEMs are aware of it and are focused on it. They're all trying to blur those boundaries as we've talked about. It's essential for them to realize a holistic design. I think that we've talked a lot about complexity and the sheer amount of options and design configurations that have to be taken into account. The companies that embrace that and make that a competitive advantage will succeed because they can differentiate themselves. Most companies struggle with complexity. So I think that's a big thing going forward. I think also we talked about the cultural aspect. It really boils down to being willing and able to pivot and change and evolve based on the environment around you, whether it's regulatory, market-driven from the consumer behavior or technologies that are entering your space that allow you to go in different directions. So I think those are all things that are either impacting the OEMs and their architectures or things that they're doing or taking into consideration as they address them. Yeah, one of the things I was thinking about, Doug, just off something you were saying just before about that kind of decoupling of hardware and software was, I guess, the necessity, therefore, or the likelihood of this of increase of things like standards like autos are, where you're kind of consciously trying to sort of decouple those and create an interface where you can write your software in a way that it can be reused across multiple platforms or ECUs or what have you. And I wonder whether we'll see an increase in adoption of standards like that in order to, in specific areas, 
increase reusability, manage that complexity, which is, you know, you're saying is, is exploding really. But then the other thing I was thinking about was around this, again, we've touched on before, is this uh, virtual validation and verification side of things where you're going to be able to verify and validate software ahead of having the physical hardware available. Because at the moment, generally, the case is that you take that software and you have to, you know, you do some maybe model in the loop or software in the loop stuff. But, you know, it's against relatively unrepresentative you know, executing software against models or what have you. But you really have to wait until you get hardware properly available, which can be quite a long way down the development cycle. And in order to kind of ramp up and accelerate that development cycle, one of the things I think we'll we'll see more of is the virtualization of those ECUs, the being able to replicate down, you know, to quite a detailed level, the actual microprocessor you're kind of going to be flashing this this software onto at a sufficient level to give you just a much higher level of robustness when you first get into some hardware and you're putting software into it. So you have already higher confidence levels. And I think one of the things we're going to be looking at is, is a real acceleration of those technologies. And, you know, and I know that that happens across multiple areas, you know, whether you're looking, doing more finite element analysis or more fluid simulation or, or whatever it is. But again, that's something that has to increase. And I know there's been, you know, we've all heard the the sort of quotes from Toyota of how many millions, billions of miles you're going to need to drive in order to properly validate a, a vehicle. So inevitably that's going to drive that. But even outside of autonomous, I think there's still a shift towards that as well. You're spot on. I think that virtual simulation validation is a rapidly growing area I've seen in several studies where it's been identified by executive engineering leadership as an area of high investment and high prioritization. And it, it's multiple reasons, right? I mean, there's clearly the timing improvement in your development activities. There's the ability to root out those bad design issues or potential failures early on in any development process. And as any engineer knows, the earlier you find those issues, the the less costly they are to fix as opposed to later in the program. One of the other things, though, is just the overall speed to market and cost in the sense that right now the traditional vehicle development cycle has you go through multiple mule or prototype build phases, each of which has tooling vehicle-specific deliverables. These are pre-production builds, right? They're not ready to be sold out there, but they're essentially production vehicles as intended to be built production vehicles. And these cost millions of dollars for any OEM to go through those phases. And if you could eliminate any aspect of those or ideally one entire cycle of those development phases, you're saving yourselves tens of millions of dollars potentially. So as well as months of development and tooling and all the validation associated with it. And I'm not saying by any means you skip any aspect of your process, but if you can enter into a phase of development with a higher level of design confidence based on simulated or virtualized design data that you started with, you're going to be better off. Yeah, I agree with you, Dan. And you know, it leads right back into the digital threat, right? You can't do the virtual validation and simulation unless you're leveraging the exact same design data that's reflected in a real-world application or use case. So it's a perfect example of why you need a digital thread to be successful. And then even shorter-term, low-hanging fruit is just pure data continuity. If you look at a development lifecycle, there's a series of requirements that every OEM starts a vehicle design with. They could be 
legacy requirements from a prior vehicle. They could be government requirements. They could be requirements coming in from a partner if they're involved in a JV or co-development. Whatever the case is, they need to homologate those and generate their preferred architecture as a result of these this combination of requirements. And then that feeds downstream. Internally, they hand off that data to development teams to start developing the network, their software architectures and structures. They hand off electrical connectivity data to a supply base to develop a set of wire harnesses. Various suppliers involved throughout that whole process. What they're done, that data has to come back to the OEM so it can be assimilated into service documentation. So dealerships and field technicians can service these vehicles over their life in the field. And again, if you have to re-enter or recreate that data, no service technician is ever going to be able to stay on top of the status of any vehicle he's looking at. Now, if you think about the future landscape, less and less you're going to have car companies that have a series or a network of dealerships spread around the country or the world to take care of your vehicle. More and more you're going to see companies move to a Rivian or a Tesla type of model where they don't have a dealership. And if you have a problem or an issue with your vehicle, a technician comes to your house and pulls up in your driveway. But you got to keep in mind what we talked about with over-the-air updates. You could have had dozens of software updates since you purchased that vehicle. You may have added features and functionality since you purchased that vehicle. How does that technician know the level of software and feature content that you have unless he's able to access the digital content that is contained by your vehicle specific to the VIN? So the digital thread story that enables that simulation and validation, you know, that's like the middle of the process. That digital thread has to start earlier and it should extend all the way through the life cycle of the vehicle. Yeah, and I think that ties back again, doesn't it, into this sort of virtual verification of even in the design process of kind of closing the loop on stuff where you've got vehicles out in service, which you know, just running around in real world usage conditions where you're able to get actual vehicle data from them. So not just, you know, nowadays someone plugs in a, a logger or a diagnostic tool and can download some data, but where you've got these telematic systems where you can get real, real-time data from vehicles, you can actually use that for performance analysis of the fleet where you can use it for understanding how your motor's operating and look at optimizing software back at the OEM to push out a new update over the air, as well as to feed into your next vehicle program where you've got actual real-world data of how people are driving nowadays and how people are using the vehicles. So I think that side of things as well, of being able to yeah, push that data back from actual vehicles back into the development process, which we've not really had in a usable form ever before, I think, will, should have quite a big impact on that too. The disruption being experienced by the automotive industry is well documented, including on this podcast. Amid this disruption, industry participants are busy working out the best ways in which they can create value, innovate, and position themselves at the forefront of the industry. For OEMs, a major focus is the development of brand new EE and software architectures designed to scale in support of advanced features and functionalities. Meanwhile, suppliers are hoping to establish themselves as experts on delivering complex vehicle features, such as self-driving. Throughout the industry, the result is a growing emphasis on EE systems and software, demanding new product development methods that blur the old boundaries between all vehicle domains. Our sincerest thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you come back to hear the final part. 